We are continuing our pursuit of thinking in a godly fashion. The best way to do that is to study what God has to say to us. So we open up the Word of God and we try to go through uh, books. We try to go through passages, one passage after another, one book after another, so that we get the entire context of what's going on. At the moment, we're going through the book of Luke, which might seem a little interesting to be going through the early chapters of Luke, and it's not December. I mean, can you imagine? Here we are talking about the birth of Jesus and why it's March, you know. Um, for the record, Jesus might have been born in March just as well as he might have been born in December. December is a good month, you know, but so is March. Hard to say. So here's the passage, though. We're picking up in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. The sixth month of what? Well, the sixth month that Elizabeth has been pregnant. Uh, remember the same angel, Gabriel, who's going to appear to Mary here in just a minute, in this passage, has already appeared to Elizabeth. And, uh, well, Zacharias, and it said to him, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby. And so she gets pregnant. Remember, she's well advanced in years, which means she's at least 60, maybe 70 even, and possibly 80. It's somewhere in there anyway. She's beyond the age of 60, well advanced in years. She's now six months pregnant. You remember that she hid herself for the last five months, so um, probably no one knows She's pregnant. She probably just kind of disappeared, just, just kind of, so nobody knows. But God knows, and of course Elizabeth knows, and so does Zacharias. So this angel, the same angelic messenger, Gabriel, comes now to this virgin engaged to a man whose name is Joseph, the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It's interesting that God makes use of messengers. God wants to use messengers. Now, obviously God could have just appeared to Mary, right? I mean, God is perfectly capable of just showing up and talking to Mary. God doesn't do that. God sends Gabriel. For the record, by the way, God has the ability to preach the gospel to your neighbor and to your loved ones and to the people you work with. In fact, God has the ability to preach the gospel to anybody he wants to. He could have angels fly through the sky and just declare the gospel. In fact, during the book of Revelation, that will exactly occur. But you know what? Right now, God would much rather leave it to us. God has given to us the honor and the privilege of being able to share the message. We can be the messengers of God. Why let God send an angel when... We could do it. I mean, the reality is, I've no doubt an angel could preach the gospel better than I could. I'm, I'm certain they could sing better than I can. But God has left it to us. So God has chosen to use messengers. And by the way, the call is on us to preach the gospel to all the world. God sends Gabriel to Mary while she's in Nazareth, a city in the Galilean region. Now, Mary, of course goes up to Jerusalem. Everybody goes to Jerusalem. And it's a common thing. Israel had the very various feasts and on the like Pentecost, you know, make it to Jerusalem during Pentecost, make it to Jerusalem during the Passover, 
make it to Jerusalem the day of, of atonement. I mean, it was common to everybody pack up, if you could, and make a trip to Jerusalem. That's where God met with Zacharias, sent, sent this exact angel to meet with Zacharias in Jerusalem. Not Mary. Not Mary. Gabriel comes to her in this city of Nazareth. It's an obscure city. She is an obscure girl. No one really knows who she is. Uh, this is so off the beaten path, Nazareth and the entire Galilean region. This referred to as the Galileans of the Gentiles. That's, uh, that's what the Jews refer to it as. There's so many Gentiles that live up there in Galilee that we're not even sure it's still part of the nation. Geographically, of course, it is. But, and when Nazareth is mentioned, generally not real good. You know, Philip finds Nathaniel and says to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. We have found the Messiah. Really? Who is he? Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says to him, Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You've got to be kidding me. When is the Messiah going to come from Nazareth? I mean, of all the places out there. So when it's mentioned, it doesn't really have all that good a reputation. In fact, Nicodemus goes to the other group there in the Sanhedrin and says, you know, before we beat on these guys, our law does not really let us judge a man unless it first hears and knows what he's doing, does it? Speaking of Jesus, not the disciples. And they answer and say to him, you're not from Galilee, are you? I mean, come on, search the scriptures. No prophets arise out of Galilee. So if this Jesus is some kind of Messiah from Galilee, I don't where are you, where are you getting this? Which, by the way, they're incorrect about that. Jonah is very likely from the Galilean region. But here's what's happened. God is about to do the greatest work that God is ever going to do in this world. The very promise that he made way back when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. When God condemns Satan and the snake... He says that I will send a deliverer, by the way, who will crush your head, Satan, though you will bruise his heel. I'm going to send this deliverer. Okay, well, they've been waiting for the deliverer to show up ever since. You would think that when the deliverer finally comes, he's going to come from the big city of Jerusalem. I mean, he's, he's going to, I don't know, God's going to do this big, mighty work. Isn't it going to be big and mighty? So there, isn't there going to be, a, I don't know what, some crowd or something? Um, no, God is going to do this great and mighty, earth-changing, human history-transforming work through this young girl who lives in this town that everybody kind of <laughs> looks down on. She's from the wrong place. No one really knows who she is. And when Jesus becomes Jesus, it's because this is going to be a work of God. This is going to be a God gets all the glory kind of event. I mean, he, he just came from Nazareth. And he was born to who? Mary? Uh, who's she? We've never heard of her. So when Jesus becomes famous, and he will, of course, to this very day is famous, it's certainly not because of where he was born, and it's not because of who his mother or father were, although that is important. So, verse 27, he, he says that 
you're now engaged to this man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So she has not known a man, but she's engaged to Joseph. She's probably, by the way, uh, this is how this culture worked. She's probably 12 years old, maybe 13, somewhere in there. She's certainly no more, she's not 15. She's younger than that. John, uh, excuse me, Joseph is probably in his mid-20s. He might be 30, probably not. It's, it's difficult to say. But this was very common. The men would get to an age where they were old enough to have a business, to have a profession, and they had the ability to build a house, and they were established. They were financially secure. They were members of the community, and now they were ready to get a, a wife. And they would pick a younger lady. That was, you know, once you got that going, the two generations, it, it just worked. Now, you know, we might, we might think that this was kind of an interesting thing, but let me give you a... Uh, let me give you an interesting family story from my family. So my mom, my mom comes from a family that had five girls. They lived in a small town in Maine, and in the town there was another family uh, that had five boys. It was the Adams family. Not that Adams family. Um, so four of those brothers married four of those sisters. And since my last name is not Adams, you can figure out that my mother was, although there was a fifth boy and my mother was the fifth girl, yeah, that, that just, my parents look at one another and laugh about that. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. But four of the brothers married four of the sisters. In the mid-'80s, the youngest couple... Uh, Ruth and Milford, my aunt Ruth and Milford, the youngest couple was going to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. All eight of them were still alive. All eight of them, you know, obviously the other couples were celebrating more than their 50th. This was a time when over in Japan, they were really embracing American culture. As you can imagine, you know, these four couples are now celebrating more than their 50th year of marriage. It went in the newspaper and went on the wire service and went all over the world. Someone from the Japanese government got a hold of them and said, we would love, because, you know, we love America and we love American culture and you guys have all, obviously the youngest couple has now been married for 50 years. We would love to arrange an all-expense-paid trip for all eight of you to come to Japan, we'll treat you like royalty, and we would like you to tour around the country and share with us. We, we have great honor for the elderly and, and for those who have done great things in life, and we would like to give you the opportunity to share with us the secret of how you managed to all stay married for this long. It's, it's all-expense-paid. If you've ever met anyone from rural Maine, you won't be surprised at all to hear that <clears throat> one of the gentlemen said, I ain't never gotten on an airplane in my life, and I ain't getting on one now. <laughs> I don't know about you, but me, I think he'd have a 
funny tasting cup of tea one night and wake up with people talking strange. That that's how I, that would have gone with me. But they they didn't go. They they didn't go. Um, what does that have to do with this morning's passage? You might perhaps be wondering. Interesting family story there. What? Okay. My Aunt Ruth and Uncle Milford, he was in his mid-20s when they got married in the backwoods of Maine, and she was 14. They stayed married for 50 years, happily married. This is my aunt, right? This isn't my great-great-great-grandmother, you know, back in the 1700s or something. This is my aunt. I mean, I knew this woman, and I asked her. That seems just a little young. She said... That day and age, I mean, we all knew that I was going to get married and he was going to marry me and we're going to wait for him. I mean, this is what's going to happen. This is where my life is. Let's just do it. So we did. And they had five kids and they had a great marriage. Um, The fact that Mary here in our passage was probably 13 or maybe 14, you know, that's... If life expectancy is in the 50s or 60s, you probably ought to get married and, and get at this. So she does. Uh, she's getting married at a, at a very early age, but obviously her husband is now going to have the ability to take great care of her. The fact is that the day and age in which she lived, um, the husband, he produced the money. He produced the house. He got the job. He, he, did, he did good things. Those are good things. You, you know, you got a business going, and you got the house going, and, and you've got the bank account going, and, and those are all really important things. But you know what? There was one thing that the woman could provide this family that the men simply cannot, and it is the most important and the most valuable, treasured thing that the family could possibly have. That's children. And if you have children... You trade your house and your business and your bank account in a second for any of them. Children are important. Children are essential. Children are the blessing of God. One of the lies of the devil that is in the process of destroying our society is this idea that that children are just a burden. They're just just something to get in the way of your self-fulfillment. Uh... No, they're not. They are the most precious gift you could possibly give yourself. They they are just treasures, which, of course, is exactly what God says, right? God says in Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. And so Mary is looking at the situation. It's like, well, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have kids. Of course, that's what I'm going to do. In fact, I can't wait. So she doesn't have any difficulty seeing this marriage and seeing the great blessing of God. That is how God greatly works. So when the angel comes to her and says that you're going to have a child, I mean, this is, this is really great news, right? Now, she's going to marry this guy named Joseph. He's a descendant of David. Now, another question that you might bring up, you might say to yourself, no, Okay, if David's son was king, and his son was king, and his son was king, and, you know, we got all the way down the list of David's sons, and obviously we can, because there's genealogies that are going to trace this. Luke's got one of them. And we get 
we get all the way down to where David is obviously the son of, excuse me, Joseph is obviously the son of David. Why isn't he somebody in this nation? I mean, why is he just a carpenter from <clears throat> Nazareth? You know, probably of all the places Nazareth. Why is he just a carpenter in Nazareth? Isn't he supposed to be somebody? Don't, is there no sense of this at all in the nation? And what in the world happened? What happened that we didn't keep the kingdom and we didn't keep a descendant of David on the throne? Okay, well, what happened was back at the time of Ezra, it's in the time of Ezra. This is, this is the last guy that there is any king that we have a record of sitting on the throne. Zerubbabel is this guy who's sitting on the, on the throne of David. Once Ezra and Nehemiah, those books come to a close, shortly thereafter, other nations conquer Israel. And once they conquer Israel, well, the first thing you do is get rid of your king. So the first thing they do is get him off the throne because, well, we're ruling the nation now. And if you look at ancient history from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to the time of Jesus, there is nothing but one nation after another marching through and conquering Israel. For a brief little bit, they, they actually have uh, uh, the opportunity, the Hasmoneans actually have the, the opportunity to put someone on the throne. But when they do... When they actually put somebody on there, the person that they pick is the priest. They pick the high priest to become the ruler of the nation, not, not a descendant of David. And then what happens is the next nation to conquer them, they look at this high priest and they're like, well, okay, so the high priest, well, we know how religion and politics go. We're good with that. That's how all politics work in the rest of the world. So here's what we're going to do. Who would like to be high priest? How much you got? Oh, no, he's got more than you do. Oh, oh, and he's got more than you do. Okay, the guy with the most money, that's the guy who ends up being the high priest. And that's how that went. In fact, that's how that went right up to the time of Jesus. So by the time you get to the time of Jesus, the people who are ruling, the, well, the Romans, of course, are actually in charge. But the people who are ruling are, even the people who are, who are in the high priest office, they have no business being there. They... So they have long ago forgotten about any descendant of David. They don't care who the descendants of David are. Just, he'd be someone to get in the way anyway. Even if we knew who he was, we would not in any way give him any rule or reign over this country. In fact, when Jesus shows up, and remember he comes in on the triumphal entry, Hosanna to the son of David in the highest, they don't go, oh, son of David. Well, I guess we better put you in charge. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not what they did. Just gone. That whole putting somebody as a descendant of David on the throne is long, long gone. In fact, you remember that when the Pilate brings out Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. Why would they say that? Well, because they have illegitimately purchased the position that they're in to begin with. They shouldn't even be the high priests. So the angel, Gabriel, comes in and he says to Mary, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, if you're a young girl who lives in a nowhere town and you're maybe 13 years old, um, you're Jewish, you're, you, you go to synagogue every day, you certainly know what angels are. You haven't seen one before, but it's no doubt. Here's one talking to you. 
But what they say to you is that you are a favored one. That, that you, in fact, are, that you are, the Lord is with you. Now, favored one. Who in the world are favored ones of God? Well, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. She would have been familiar with that passage. And David found favor in God's sight. Both of those passages are, are you know, you can just look at the Old Testament. So... She's sitting there thinking, who in the world am I to be a favored one, and who am I to have the Lord be with me? Not to mention that there's an angel standing here in front of me saying this. So on the one hand, this is really good news, I guess. On the other hand, there's an angel telling me this, and this is kind of terrifying. So she's very perplexed at this statement and is pondering, what in the world does this salutation mean? What, what exactly is it you're saying here? Is this good news, bad news? It's an angel. It's all kind of scary. And yet he seems to be saying really good things that, I'm, that I have favor with God. What? What are, what are we talking about here? The angel says to her, first of all, do not be afraid. It's an angel, right? They ask to say that. I mean, every time an angel show up, it's don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. This is not a bad meeting. There is nothing bad going on here. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be afraid. You have found great favor with God. In fact, what's going to happen is you will conceive in your womb and you are going to bear a son and you will name him Jesus. Mary clearly gets from this announcement that something pretty interesting is going to occur here. The angel doesn't say, oh, by the way, when you get married to Joseph, the two of you are going to have a son. That's not what the angel says. The angel says, you are going to conceive in your womb and you are going to have a son. She puts together. There's no grass growing under this girl's feet. She is clearly a, a bright young lady who is paying attention even to what an angel is saying to her. She's not so overcome by the moment and so terrified that she is not listening. She's, she's listening. She's weighing in her mind what, what exactly is being said. So the good news is I'm definitely going to have a baby. I don't have to worry about that. And I even know his name. I'm going to call him Jesus. <laughs> this, is, this is really good. Is there more? Yes. He will be great. That's it. Now, Gabriel, when Gabriel came to Zacharias and spoke to him about his son, he said, you're going to have a son and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. That's a qualifier. He's, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He may not be great in the sight of men. I mean, he may or may not. He may or may not be great in your sight, or it doesn't, he'll be great in God's sight, but that's not saying anything about anybody else's sight. Jesus, no qualifiers. He will be great. That's it. You are going to have a son, and he is going to be great. In fact, he'll be so great that he will actually be called the son of the Most High, not the son of Joseph. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Now, if you're Mary, and you are at all politically aware, and I'm sure she was, the whole nation was, you wait, he's going to be given the throne of his father David. Um, we don't have a throne anymore. We don't even have a kingdom anymore. 
we are a nation in subjugation to the Romans at the moment. How in the world is that going to happen? This is pretty interesting. And by the way, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. I don't think Mary got this at this moment, but clearly the angel is making the statement that there is going to be a resurrection here. And it's not stated ex explicitly except as you understand the situation. How in the world is Jesus going to sit on the throne of David and reign forever? How is his kingdom going to have no end? Well, the only way that can happen is if you live forever. Well, that's only going to happen until after the resurrection. So th this is a great promise. This is an amazing thing. This is life transforming. Spoken to this young girl in Nazareth without anybody else there. She doesn't have a question, though. She, she says to the angel, and she's pondering things. You know, Mary's, she's, how's this going to work? I mean, I'm a virgin here. I, I, I have never known a man. I, I, how am I going to have a son? How's this going to work here? There's, she clearly gets that the angel is making an announcement here that is much more than simply you and Joseph, this is going to happen. She, there's no lack of faith here. This isn't, she's not like Zacharias, who ends up unable to, to speak. She clearly is just trying to figure this out. How, how, how is this going to work? And the angel provides her with an answer. The angel says to her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The overshadowing presence of God is, a, is, is something that occurs in the Old Testament. This is not a foreign concept. This is not like this has never been ha happened at all in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, you see that, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the water. The Spirit of God kind of overshadows the water. What happens as the Spirit of God overshadows the water? It brings forth life. The water suddenly brings forth the fish and, and all of the things that are in the sea. Why? Because the Spirit of God is overshadowing them. When God creates the nation of Israel, the nation, He leads them out of Egypt. And what does He do when He leads them out of Egypt? There is a pillar of cloud by day that does what? Overshadows them. God overshadows the nation of Israel as he brings them into existence. When the disciples see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter, being Peter, hey, we should build three tabernacles here. You know, one for Moses. and I, God does what? Overshadows them. A cloud overshadows them. And this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And this same word is used in Deuteronomy 32.11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, spreads his wings. And that this overshadowing, gather the chicks together. So when God's spirit overshadows Mary... Life springs forth. This is exactly what's happening here. Now, that there's a miraculous birth 
if you know your Old Testament at all, and you've paid attention at all, you're not surprised. There have been a number of miraculous births in the Old Testament. Remember, the first miraculous birth is Sarai and Abram. Remember that the birth of Sarai and Abram is going so badly. They've been in the land 10, 12 years. No kids. They're like, wait, we left Ur of the Chaldees to come over here because you're going to put us in this land and you're going to make us a great and mighty nation. Uh, we don't have any kids. In fact, we've now gotten to the place where we are well advanced in age and still no kids. So Sarai comes up with a bright idea. Well, you know, I got my handmaiden Hagar here. You know, I mean, I, I, I got to do something. We got to make this happen somehow. Of course, that's not what God had in mind. In fact, God comes back another 10 years later or so, maybe more, and says to Abraham, no, your wife is going to have a baby. That is so astounding that she stands in the, door, in the doorway of the tent and laughs to herself. Got to have a baby. You, you got to be kidding me. That, no way. And God says to Abraham, why is your wife laughing? He looks at her and says, I didn't laugh. Yes, yes, you did. So that's miraculous birth. Rebecca and Isaac. Now, you might not think about it, except that if you, if you look at Genesis 25, 19, now these are the records of the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, of the Armenian of Padam Aram, the, anyway, to be his wife. I'll get to the verse that actually matters here. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. You might have missed that. But Rebekah couldn't have kids either. So he had to pray to the Lord, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah's wife conceived. So Isaac and Rebekah had difficulty having kids. They couldn't have any kids until Isaac really pleaded with God that his wife would have children. God answers. And you end up with Jacob and Esau. Jacob gets married. Leah, she has no problem. She seems to just, you know, she has six kids by the time it's all done. Leah, Leah's fertile. But the only woman that really wanted to marry was Rachel. She can't have kids. She comes to him and, and, and you just give me children or I die. And he looks at her, he's like, am I God? I got, who am I? I? I can't open your womb. God, of course, finally gives Rachel children. And Joseph shows up. So, you know, here we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here the three patriarchs. Every single one of them has difficulty having kids. Every single one of them has, as it were, miracle children. Man Manoah and his wife have the miracle baby Samson. Uh, Ruth and Boaz, uh, this is their miracle baby. So that she ends up having a son. Uh, Hannah, remember Hannah goes and prays and, and, and the... Eli, the priest, is looking at her and thinks she's drunk. She's like, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm just so miserable in my spirit. I can't have kids. Samuel is born. And, of course, Elizabeth and Zacharias. So by the time we come to Mary, I mean, we're already primed. You know, God, when God is going to get something done, when God is going to bring uh, the patriarchs, when God is going to bring a judge, Samson, or when God is going to bring uh, miracle babies show up. Sam Samuel is a miracle baby. But you know what? When we get to Mary, I mean, this one tops them all. I mean, this isn't, I mean, talk about miracle. 
This isn't just a, a matter of whether dad is having fertility problems or not. There's no dad at all. That is the greatest miracle. And of course, this is the greatest prophet. This is the greatest son of God. So this is an amazing, marvelous thing. And of course, back in Genesis 13, uh, excuse me, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And if you read that and you thought, well, that's a really strange way to word that. I mean, that's, what? Of course, it's Jesus. And now, now we see, right? Now we see that this is exactly what God has been doing. Isaiah talks about the young woman who has this child. We see this not here in Luke, but we see it in Matthew that that directly applies to this situation. This is a miraculous birth because this is what God is doing. And if we read our Old Testament, we are, should not at all be surprised that we get to this place where there is this amazing, miraculous birth. The angel goes on to say, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. It's very likely that Mary had no idea. It's very likely that virtually everyone had no idea. The angel tells her. And why? Because the angel finishes with, Nothing will be impossible with God. Just want you to know that in the list of miraculous births, you're in the list. And oh, by the way, you are the most miraculous of all of the miraculous births. If you're wondering whether or not God can actually do this, your, your cousin Elizabeth, you know, your relative Elizabeth, she is with child. She was called barren. You know, this wonderful, marvelous, godly couple that have just older in years. And guess what? She's having a baby. And if she can have one, you certainly can. Nothing is impossible with God. Isn't that an amazing statement? Mary says, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Okay. If this is what God wants to do, if this is what God is doing, if this is the plan of God, if this is how this is all going to unfold, okay. I'm here to humbly do whatever God asked me to do. I mean, nothing is possible with God. So, total humility. This is who Mary is. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departs. Okay. If this is what God is going to do, this is what God is going to do. I'm, uh, whatever God's program is, I'm with God's program. A bond servant is, a, we don't have slavery in this day and age, so we don't, may not realize this is the lowest of the low. This is as low as slaves get. That's who she is. That's what she says. I, I, I'm here to just do whatever God wants. Wow. Is that not the spirit to have? First of all, nothing is impossible with God, and so you know what? We ought to just do whatever God wants. Jesus is going to be raised by a very godly mom. She, she, she is a godly woman. She is willing to do whatever God wants. She doesn't understand it all, but whatever God wants, that's what we're going to do. Whatever God says, that's how this is going to go. And God is going to transform the entire world with obscure people from an obscure place, pulling out hidden things. You know, the, the fact that Joseph is actually the son of David. Nobody's really paying attention to that. That's, that doesn't really matter. Oh, oh yes. Yes, it does. God gave his word. It matters what tribe Joseph is from. 
It matters what tribe Mary is from. It matters because God said it. And so here we are today, and you know what Jesus said? He's coming back. And we might be tempted to go, oh, really? Yeah, Jesus is coming back? Okay. Uh, Just as Jesus left, he will be back. And we had dare not dismiss it. God fulfills his word. We may all be liars. God is not. And what God says God is going to do, God is going to do it. And we can look here. You might think, well, I'm not really anybody. That's okay. God loves working with people who aren't anybody. That's exactly who God specializes in using is people who aren't anybody. In fact, the better we keep that spirit that, I'm not anybody, the more likely God is to get stuff done through our lives because he will get the glory. That's how God works. As as we look at this, this very event, the most monumental birth of all mankind, it's going to happen to an unknown girl in a place of obscurity. It's going to transform the world because that's how God works. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we don't have to somehow be rich or famous or millionaires or come from some big fancy family or place or Lord, you take common folk, regular people. That's how you transform the world. So, Lord, may we maintain humility. May we just be obedient, just like Mary. Here is your bondservant, Lord. If you want to use us, here we are. Whatever you say, we will do. We are here to serve you. That's the spirit you desire. So, Lord, may we exemplify it. May it be who we are. May we endeavor to simply do what pleases you. We ask in your son's name.